You're tuning in to the TV Campfire with Caitlin McFarland and Emily Gibson, co-founders and co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival, aka TV Camp for Grownups. This episode is part of our series of special releases recorded live at ATX Season 7. To hear our original The TV Campfire series, please scroll down to episodes 1 through 5. Hi, y'all. This panel, this week's release, it's a big deal. Yeah, it really is. It's a release from season seven, as you know, and it's a retrospective of a past series and a look at a current series, which is also unique. But at its core, it's deconstructing how to make powerful TV and who makes more powerful, journalistic, insightful television than David Simon. And what's great is it's not just a powerful episode that he made once or even one powerful series. You're looking at more than two decades worth of consistently visceral, honest television that also challenged and exposed a broken system. A huge part of that is Simon's journalistic background and voice, which allows his shows to question which stories urgently need telling and who are the right people to tell them. Chances are that even if you've never actually seen a David Simon show, you've felt its cultural impact. Shout out to all of you who still have The Wire on their to-watch list. Oh, I'm so jealous of you. (laughs) The backstory to how this conversation came to be is that we realize a lot of Simon's series were coming up on big anniversaries. 10 years since The Wire, 10 years for Generation Kill, 5 years for Treme, and combining that with the season 2 release of The Deuce, we started talking to HBO about what we could do and then learned it was a 20-year anniversary for David and his company, Blown Deadline, to be collaborators at HBO. And then a panel was born. Ultimately, this conversation is truly all about that collaboration, but also a collaboration with a creative team. I believe David would be the first to tell you that this job is not done in a vacuum. It is done with stellar teams that join him on this panel and talk about the multiple projects they've done together. That includes his producing partner, Nina K. Noble, director Anthony Hemingway, casting director Alexa L. Vogel, president of HBO miniseries, Carrie Anthalis, and actors Chris Coy and Dominique Fishback. Together, this group bands together to bring attention to the stories that need to be told. From post-Katrina New Orleans, to housing corruption in the 70s, to the beginning of commercialization of the sex industry. You've heard us talk about it before, but here it is again. TV is important. It is powerful, and story is our greatest tool. Simon's team, side by side, um, take all shapes, sizes, colors, talents, and much more. And through this conversation, you can see that representation, and we're glad that you're tuning into it. Speaking of tuning in... Be sure to catch season two of The Deuce, currently airing Sundays at 9, 8 central on HBO. Now, pull up a log, settle in, and join us for the TV campfire for 20 years of HBO and Blown Deadline, moderated by Tim Goodman from The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, You know what? This is uh, an interesting collective because you don't really see this that often in the business, and this is less a, a company, blown, uh, blown Deadline, than it is kind of a collective. So I'd like to start with uh, David and Nina. I want you to talk about like how this was all put together and your vision for it. <laughs> the put-together the put part is really your business. I wish I could say we had a plan. <laughs> um, um, seeing all, all this work, maybe it seems like we did. I think we just... Uh, um, David and I are kind of different, but there's some things that um, we have in common. We 
Um, we care a lot about honesty. We care about details, and um, we like working with good, talented people and um, being able to see people thrive in their careers and go forward. And so um, I guess, uh, I guess I'm, I'm just, I don't know that we had a plan, but I'm tremendously proud of what we've done. We didn't have a plan. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, we, we approach every, I think we approached every project singularly as, okay, this is what we have to shoot now. Um, and I think it was somebody at this festival basically was the one who looked up and said, you know, it's been 20 years. And, and that exactly. gives just that moment of pause of like, okay, we were doing one at a time and they were all what we were doing now. But I'm particularly proud that, I say this often as a joke, but it's, there's a, I say it with a little bit of pride. This is 20 years um, without an audience. Because like <laughs> nobody watches the shows when they're on the air. They find them later. And they go, oh. You know, Carrie's hit right there, right? You know? Well, I, Carrie, Carrie will have to admit it. I mean, and God bless Carrie. Carrie has been. We, uh, we, we worked on Show Me a Hero for 18 years, and five people watched it. Right. <laughs> and I wouldn't trade those 18 years for, you know, three normal ones. But, um, but I mean, on some level, God bless you for, uh, for being part of the green light because I'm glad we did the work we did, but it was always done with the premise of like, this is the story we're trying to capture and no plan. For, if, if anyone had a plan to be a TV entity, blown deadline certainly would be the argument against whatever plan you thought you were executing. Well, obviously, and you came from journalism and, and got into it. Uh, I'm guessing that's why Blown Deadline is the title. <laughs> uh, you know, and, but here we are 20 years later, uh, and you've created kind of like a little mini studio. You work with the same people. You trust the same people. So, again, I want to just stick with you two for this. So what is it about like working with the same people uh, through the years and, and, and knowing you can rely on them? I mean, I, Nina should tell this story, but, you know, I met Anthony... As, the, as one of the two ADs on the corner, the first project we did. And I don't know, he was like nine years old. You know? <laughs> I mean, no, he was, he was older than that. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's, he has now reached a point where, like, you say we work with the same people. We can't get Anthony Hemingway anymore, you know? He's, we, can't, we can't lasso him into the next project. He's, he's gone, man, you know? But that, that was... Nina, you knew him even earlier, right? Yeah, how... How many? 20, 25 years. Yeah. I think we, we just realized yeah. that. <laughs> it's, it's been a long time now. Um, Anthony was, uh, was an office PA, but he was always too big for the office. <laughs> he, was, he was busting at the seams and uh, followed me around until I got him a job on the set. And I was, a, I was a second AD at the time, and we've just kind of been together on all, all kinds of projects since then. Yeah. And, uh, the corner was that your first job as a first AD? Yeah, all my first came from this family. You know, my first job as a first AD, my first job as a director, my first job as a producer. Um, that's indicative and should tell you the loyalty and the love that comes from this team and what they see in you and believe in you and trust in you and really get behind you that to motivate you at the same time has, is, is beyond encouraging. Um, I know how hard it is to talk about yourselves, but the fact that they believe and they trust and they grow from within is something that's not common in this business. Um, and all of us are a product of that and can say that very easily because it's something to work with someone 
where you actually are a part of the project and you they they trust in you and and allow you to have a voice in the process you know because you're there for a reason and a purpose um and they know that and they believe in you and 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 that's just again it's not common and you know i it set the bar for me you know it's it's so like you had to go out there in the real world well yeah it's like you know and at the same time you know with that and as hard as it is for for you to even want to grow someone and and clip their wings and let them fly and and, and continue to to persevere what you've helped cultivate is a testament to what you've shared and what you've started and nina and i have been together like she said since i was 16 years old um and it was just an instant thing where we it's like my my big sister here you know it was like we are kindred spirit and everything else and it was just it's just always been that but we david and i've had the advantage i think of making up our own rules you know that he had the experience of being on homicide life on the street and um and and i had come from features mostly and so when we started doing these projects the corner was the first big you know thing where david was a showrunner on his own um and i came in as a producer originally and bob colesbury was our other partner and so we we kind of figured out how we wanted to do it we don't have a traditional writer's room we don't um when we did The Wire, we were just doing one episode after the other after the other, and I thought after the first season, I was like, you know what, we really need to take a day in between each episode so that we can like have a scout and have everyone sort of catch up. And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. So, <laughs> so that's what we do, and like the directors that even come in now um, are thrilled about that, just to have that one down day. So there's just things that we've developed over time about how we want to work, that, that we just had that autonomy. And so I don't really know that it's unusual. It's how we not do the same. Because I, I've never, I haven't had to be out there and I haven't had to be away from HBO too much in the past, um, in, in all these years, which also um, you know, keeps me kind of in a bubble, I guess. Well, Anthony, you, that's a perfect segue. You, <clears throat> you've got so much stuff on your resume that post uh, Blown Deadline, post these productions. Uh, so you've, you've had all kinds of experiences across the board. What's the difference between working with, with these guys in this group? I think I'd say probably the first thing that is the, the biggest difference is really working with uh, a family that cares about you, that has the right sensitivity to allow you to be a part of it, not just being hired for you know, in a mechanical sense, and just to only just do one thing, you know, they entrust you, they depend on you, um, and at the same time, encourage you and push you. You know, one of the testaments that I've taken, and it's something that I know Nina and I, um, and I learned this from her, you know, which was, you know, a lot of times I'm working on productions where it's just saturated with crew. And there's so many people. And on one hand, that's great. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, what am I going to do? You know, it takes away from your contribution in a sense. And so you just don't have a lot of people just sitting around, you know. Um, now, sometimes that's helpful because things that we've done has been incredibly challenging. Um, but at the same time, it's how you learn. It's how you grow in love with what you do because you have great stakes 
involved. You know, you are a part of it from start to finish in a large way, you know. So that is really, I think, for me, the biggest thing that is the difference is really being with someone who really wants and, and, and respects that you are contributing to the total process. And, and just quickly on that, is there, do you find like the bar is different? as far as like what these two expect, and then you go to a different production? Man, yes, absolutely. Like I said, you know, I mean, I cut my teeth uh, on David's material. It doesn't compare to much out here, honestly, and that is just not saying, I'm biased to it, only because he and Nina both are two individuals that care about what they do, you know, and of course the common thread through a lot of it is really talking about something that is about the human condition and about life and people. And so there's such a great um, passion that comes into that material that doesn't come all the time, you know, so much is done and driven by just commerce. And so that's been the hard thing that I've um, found in going and dealing with so many other projects after the last thing we did together, um, it's just the foundation that I have is come and been rooted with them and, and, and of that same mind and belief. Um, so it's been really challenging. And my first directing, my debut was on The Wire. So everything after that was just like, oh, my God, it just didn't compare. So it's been hard. <laughs> yeah, it's not often that you start on the show that's no. going to Hall of Fame first ballot. Yeah, <laughs> not at all. Uh, and Alexa, you, uh, is it true you've cast every single... Well, I, didn't do, I didn't do the corner, so everything okay. since the wire. Uh, that's a lot. So uh, I want, and I want to circle back because twenty years of that. But like, so we have, you know, we both. We got Dominique and Chris are both here, and, and they've been in. Uh, uh, both of them have been in multiple productions from Blown Deadline. What is it that you're looking for that you know these guys want in actors, uh, and how it matches up to sort of maybe David's material and, and some of the other writers, and specifically these two because the role, the, the roles that they've been in are so diverse from one another. Well, I mean, I think it's about, it, it's always about the writing and how you realize it in the most authentic way possible. So that's about really good actors. And in these cases, um, them being able, you know, my job is to understand how much an actor can do. And in this case, they can do more than the thing they were hired for the first time. And And everybody, you know, the great thing about working very, very hard to make something great in an authentic way that nobody sees for a really long time is that's part of the bond, is everyone cares so much about the work, and it's not about the audience. I mean, it's great when there is an audience, eventually. It's really nice, but we didn't have one for a long, long time. So it really, you just come to understand that it's about the work and doing it the best way that you possibly can. And that's also about, you know, really wonderful actors who work hard and, and serve the material in the best possible way. Yeah, and all of the shows that, that everybody just saw clips of, uh, I think one of the through lines of those is that you, a lot of times there either is a name actor or isn't, sometimes it isn't when you first start, but what people find is that they fall in love with a lot, a lot of the, because the cast is such a huge ensemble cast, and they start falling in love with, with actors that they you know, might not have had the headlining role. How do you find people like that that are going to pop out? I don't think you ever think about it that way. Um, you really do just think about uh, peopling it with interesting and diverse different kinds of 
qualities and behaviors. I, I never think about the end result except to serve the piece and make sure that it'll be clear. Um, I think you do fall in love with these characters and it's because I think really fine actors bring writing to life in a way that, uh, no offense David, isn't even on the page. It, it, it comes out in a, in a wholly dimensional way. But I don't think any of us ever know how it's gonna work until it's there. Well, it's, I think people here, because they're TV geeks and they're all totally into it, a little bit inside baseball stuff about casting, get, uh, putting you on the spot a little bit, but can you give me a little bit about uh, Dominic and Chris, about what you saw in them for their roles? And, and... Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's going to be good. Come on. Well, I think we worked a lot in the room, didn't we? You and I for Show Me a Hero. I don't think we like worked a lot in the room for Show Me Hero, but I would tell the story because I came in for Show Me Hero and I made a like a, a choice and Alexa said, that that was weird. Uh, but we're gonna keep it. Yeah. And I was like, no, I, I could do it over. She's like, no, yeah, we're gonna keep it. Thank you. And like she like took the mic and I was like, well, I walked out like I just blew that. I mean, sometimes it's always tied to the writing, but sometimes what you see is somebody has a take or, you know, in Chris's case, it's that he absolutely allows his characters to just be. He doesn't show off. He doesn't work too hard. In Ways. In Dom's case, you know, casting that piece was really difficult because people so want to show you their version of those characters in that circumstance. And again, it's really about allowing them. And um, I know that sounds amorphous, but you guys know what I mean. Um, and also, you know, you have to, we have to be able to see a certain, eventually, I know, because I know the way we were thinking about what the arc of this character would be, that we had to have some hope eventually. Um, so somebody's spirit has to come through a bit. But, you know, again, it's really just about good acting. I know that sounds boring. No, that's not. And and Carrie, I promise I'm not just skipping over you to get there. But it's I, I want to ask uh, Dominic and Chris, how quickly into each of the productions that you've been on did you realize that David's not going to put up with you riffing and freelancing? That was the first thing he said to me. <laughs> that, well, that uh, Paul Haggis directed Show Me a Hero, and I I'm a writer as well, so I and I do poetry and theater, so it's really is about the words and not changing anything. So I wasn't trying to change nothing. And then Paul Haggis was like, "Okay, now you could just play," and I was like, "What? You can say, you know, say what comes." I was like, "So I couldn't, I couldn't do it because I was so like." And I was like, "Well, they don't need my help to do it." Because what I really loved about uh, when I got the sides for Show Me a Hero, I said, "Oh, I know that girl." You know, she's, she's like me, she's like my mom, she's like the girls in my neighborhood, because I'm from East New York, Brooklyn, I just felt it was authentic. And sometimes when you get scripts of people trying to write for these characters, I'm like, I, wouldn't, I would never say ain't, like, like, you wouldn't put ain't there, like, there's a way of using slang, okay? It's the wrong way to use slang, there's a, like a good way to use slang, and I think David just I can take it. that a step further. When I'm in the audition room, I read the scenes over and over and over again, and if you ever try and come off of the way it's written exactly, it doesn't work rhythmically, and it's not as good. And those are, I mean, it, it makes absolutely no sense to try. I mean, actors know when it's easy to say, 
And it's easy to say when it's written well, rhythmically, right. it just comes out. That's right. And there's no need, in my own experience with them, uh, and I, I can really only echo what Anthony said, that like, there's such a um, tremendous and singular two-blown deadline uh, level of trust and belief that they kind of put in us, which then in turn makes you reciprocate that trust and belief in them. And so when those pages come in, uh, I love to ad-lib, and I've done a lot of it in other jobs. There's no need to do it in this. In fact, most of the time, it's kind of a cool dichotomy to working with them because both times that I've gotten to work with them, it's been the biggest and best quality job that I've ever had, and both times it's been the easiest job I've ever had because I can essentially just show up and say the words and everybody gives me all the credit. <laughs> I have actually a little bit of inside casting baseball uh, ball from the writer's perspective, which is you're often reading actors at that point on early drafts of the scripts. Right. So there often is a lumpy phrase or something that probably won't survive. We even hear it on the tapes. We'll be watching tapes of actors reading and we'll realize, yeah, that line's gotta die. But then, from a casting perspective, it becomes really interesting because you, you watch the actors who can actually make a bad line work in an audition, that's like, Wow, they actually did something with that, that turkey. You know, like at that moment, you're going like, nah, I'll fix the line later, but look what they're doing. You know, it's like there's actually a tell yeah. to a good actor saving a bad line. Right. We have to take a quick break. Uh, you mean we get to take a break and be offered something awesome? Yes, that is what I meant. I thought so. More of the TV campfire and great TV conversations right after this sweet offer. It's hard to find a perfect pair of jeans, right? You don't want to break the bank, but you do need something that lasts. Great jeans don't have to be complicated, nor do they have to be expensive. That seems like a new theory. <laughs> well, with Distilled, it's free shipping both ways. So like, really, what do you have to lose? So if I order a pair and they're not right, like for, they're too big, they're too small, they're too short, they're too long, they just, you know, don't make my legs look as good as I want them to, I can just put them back in the mail for free. Yeah, and you can get a refund or exchange them. There's like no risk to this scenario. The truth is, you will find the perfect pair. What's better than saving time and saving money? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Well, great TV is also maybe better than that. But here's the thing I was thinking about. When you're watching TV, like, you want to be in, like, really comfortable pants, right? Uh, yeah, there's nothing worse than watching TV or a movie, if you're a movie kind of person, mm. and being uncomfortable and having your pants too tight. So I got the, like, black power stretch ones. And what's really cool about them is I can wear them to work or on a plane or into a meeting or on my couch watching a bunch of TV. A <laughs> pair of pants that can transition from all of those places is kind of a miracle. It's like... What's another version of Sisterhood, the traveling pants? It's like, but for yourself, like, right. you're the different phases of your life. Yeah. <laughs> These black pants that I got, like, I was, I, look, I'm going to be honest. I was doubtful. Like, I thought I'm ordering these online. They look a little too skinny for me. Like, they just, they don't look like they're going to work. And they are the right amount of stretch. They're super comfortable. I wear them maybe more than I'd like to admit. <laughs> well, and here's the thing. We have very different body shapes. So to have jeans that fit both of us. Yeah. It's kind of magical. So here's the deal, guys. Go to Distilled, which is dstld.com right now, and you can get 20% off your first pair by using the code TVCampfire at checkout. What are you waiting for? Seriously, go. And Carrie, so, I mean, you've heard them say that <clears throat> no one's watching. That's, I think it's an overstatement. And uh, 
well, certainly in 2018, nobody's watching anything because the audience is so spread out. It's really just, in a, in a really interesting way, it goes back to sort of the wire at the beginning where, you know, I, I just from a critical standpoint, we were all like, you know, this is going to be one of the greatest series of all time, and, and no one was watching it, we were saying, but they were. Uh, but our feeling was at some point, people will discover it, and that has happened. And that's probably true now for, for lots of dramas, given just how, you know, the peak TV contents. As far as HBO, how does that play? Is it just quality, or you just want to be in business with Blow and Deadline? What's the story? Um, well, my first encounter with David and Nina, but David first, was when he came in to pitch The Corner. And... The internal conversation at HBO about the corner was nobody's ever done this before. And we were and to a, a, a large degree still are in the business of, of doing stuff that's going to pop off the entertainment page and that's going to get opinion makers talking. I mean, yes, we also now um, have to produce like big blockbuster shows like Game of Thrones, The Sopranos, but a, a key part of what distinguishes HBO as a kind of magazine of programming is having those projects that are going to get people talking, get people talking uh, off the entertainment pages about issues and... Um, what, what David and Nina and the team really know how to do is, is two things. Number one, they're, they have their fingers on the pulse of, of, of subject matters that go to the very heart of the fabric of American society. And number two, particularly David, is, is, has an incredible sense of what's going to stir shit in the in the in the journalistic community and um, and in the kind of among chattering classes as they call them um, and and so you know, on each of these on each of the projects that I've been involved in and on on, on the the projects that I'm not involved in I know um, that instinct has has pretty much proved unerring in serving one of the needs of HBO as a subscription service. Yeah, and uh, just a quick story about from HBO's perspective, and I'm not, I didn't hear it from you, but uh, first season of Wire is so super complicated at, at the time. You know, like uh, you, you, people who watch it now and they're like, wait a minute, there's 40 people in the first hour. Nobody's identified. No one, when, when you switch buildings and you, and you, you know, today, I always tell people that like a regular TV show says, a car is driving, it'll say, duh, 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 duh. you'll hear the typing, and it'll say, FBI headquarters. None of that was in the first episode of The Wire. It was only on the do glass door, and you had to be paying, really have to pay attention to David Simon stuff. And I remember that first season of, of The Wire being so complicated and so dense and so great, and then talking to an HBO executive who won't be named, who said, what the hell are you doing in the second season? You're going to take the whole show and you're going to turn it around in the Baltimore docks Tell me about what that was like, but I guess, Carrie, inside HBO, and David, what was your feedback when, when you basically told them, yeah, all that stuff that we built, we're going to change it and make that the B storyline? I got nothing because I didn't work on this show. <laughs> Don't tell me. Um, yeah, Carrie's with us on the miniseries. Um, yeah. we, we knew that we wanted to slice off different pieces of the city and, and start structuring a city um, 
one one sort of social, economic, political sector at a time. And so the second season was, we're coming in, we're, we now want to do a theme on the death of work and the working class, and so um, we'd like to go to the port. And I remember what we had sold them was a critique of the drug war for the first season. And so when I came in to Chris, and he was Carolyn and Chris was at that meeting, and I remember I said, so now we're going to do this, we're going to, we're going to put that story on the shelf, and we're going to go over here, and we're a whole new class of people, and uh, we're going to chase down that theme. And Chris turned to Carolyn and said, was that the plan? <laughs> and Carolyn, like, who's, this is, she had my back, but like, how can you have my back when I basically was, she goes, it is now. <laughs> and I mean, I think it's fair to say in those days, there was a little more, let's throw shit against the wall and see if it sticks to HBO. I mean, the stakes were not that high for, the, we, were, we, were, we were in a lovely sinecure in Baltimore because the subscription base was really being driven in a healthy way by The Sopranos, which had premiered a, a season earlier, and, uh, and Sex and the City. And we were in, like, the only, you aside, because you, you, you showed up on the corner, but the, only, we, the joke used to be the only way that an HBO executive would ever get to Baltimore to look in on us was if like, they were on the way to Paris from LA and, and the plane had to make an emergency landing <laughs> on North Avenue, you know? So like we were really left alone and it was an incredible. Okay. So let, let's, let's talk about, <laughs> no, let's talk about um, the, the corner and the, cause I did spend time on the set on the corner and I happened you to be there. You did get out of the band, yes. And I happened to be there on a day when there was a bit of a, a crisis, and it, it, there was a, a New York Times. Well, from our point of, from HBO's point of view, there was a bit of a crisis. Um, a New York Times reporter um, named Janie Scott was um, was doing a piece for the Times um, as part of a series of articles about race in the workplace in America, and. Um, there was a lot of tension between David and the director of the corner, uh, the corner Charles Dutton. Um, and Charles um, was giving me an earful in his office and was about to sit down for an interview with Janie Scott. Um, and, you know, all the way through the, the process of Jannie reporting on the show, HBO was very skeptical that this was a good idea. Um, and David overruled everyone and said, yeah, I want this to happen. I, I want this to go forward. Um, the, I called Mission Control and I said, you know, uh, Century City, we've got a problem. Um, and, and, um, and then I was, the instructions I got was do what you can and we'll see where the chips fall. And the, um, I remember the day that the article came out. It was on page one of the New York Times. It was the front page, started above the fold of the New York Times and I got a call from my father who's on the East Coast, I was in LA at this point, 
and he said, hey, Carrie, your name's on the front page of the New York Times in an article about race in the workplace in America. And I thought for sure my, job, my career was over. Um, I, I'd love to hear David's point of view on... How great that. was that article, though, for, for, the, for, the, for the point of view of like publicity for an HBO project? This is my point, but that's why I'm turning it over to yeah. you. I mean, it won, that, that series of articles, by the way, for the Times won, won a Pulitzer Prize. Not, not, we were just one of like nine, but I'm just saying, obviously being an ex-reporter, I have some regard for that process of acquisition. And my premise was, we're not doing anything we're ashamed of. We're telling a story, we're gonna tell it really well, it's gonna be accurate to the book. It is fraught racially at points. It, we have, um, but she actually came in, Jenny came in, she originally said, she wanted to do something about the writing process with myself and David Mills, a, a, a friend of many years uh, who we were working with, we've worked with, he, he was in this family too. He, he's regrettably passed on, but he, he and I wrote those scripts together but we worked on our college paper together, and though he was African-American, we, like, it, the relationship had moved way past that, you know? Like, we knew letting her in that she wasn't gonna, but she gravitated to the relationship between uh, Charles and myself because Charles was very stressed. Uh, he was working with material from a white writer. Charles lived that dynamic in East Baltimore. He grew, he came up at Hoffman and Holbrook, in that neighborhood. He, he'd, been in, you know, he'd been in prison, famously. Um, you know, he sort of honed himself as an actor, beginning in, 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 in prison productions. And um, you know, he, he, he came to it with a lot of history. And while he was venting to you, and while I could tell that there were things that were frustrating to him with me, I also could tell every day in the dailies that we were getting good stuff, really good stuff. So, like, my job at that point is just to, is, okay, you know, you're not going to be my best friend for a while, because, by the way, we ended the project on very good terms. But in the making of it, he was intensely aware of the racial dynamic. And I thought, if he vents that, he vents that. It'll be for him to do it. And meanwhile, I, I kept, I, my demeanor with Janie Scott in New York Times was, and this happened today, and that happened today, and unless you bring it up, I'm not bringing it up. In the last week of production, she finally gave me all of the, and I, and I remember I said to her, I said it like with sort of smiling at her, I said, oh, has, has Rock been indiscreet? And she looked at me, she went, well, he, he, he and I said, it's okay, it's okay, tell me what he said. And then, and then, then I was in a perfect position to just say, okay, well, I could see how this would upset him, but what I meant was, and you know, on the other hand, and I knew right where it was going. Again, the calculation of letting her in is now she's in the inside, but we're, just don't lie and and don't, you know, she's it, it's the best possible circumstance. So I, I remember I, I landed the quote that ended the article, which was I said, I know this, I'm, what I've written is better because he directed it, and what he's, you know, and and, I, and vice versa. And that ended the, that was the culminating moment. So it's like, we actually benefited from the risk of letting her in. If she'd have been a reporter who was intent on tearing us down, but you got the sense from the New York Times and from that whole project that it wasn't gonna be that. So then all we had to do was take a few, you know, moments of stress and, you know, take a year off of your life and, and we were fine. But, <laughs> but, like, I knew that was gonna turn out okay in the end, um, but, 
again, I've had a lot of years in newsrooms, and, and I, I, she went about the process the right way. Well, I have a, uh, we're going to have some um, audience questions in a minute, but I did want to talk to the, to the actors and, I, and Anthony about acting and directing uh, for Blown Deadline and these guys, uh, David and Nina, about expectations, but also the differences in your roles. I can barely see you down there, but the, the, the roles that you've worked on, on these shows are incredibly different, and I know as an actor you have to shift, and that's part of the job, but uh, how much benefit is it knowing that uh, these guys are going to, it's not like softball stuff, you're tackling really deep issues, uh, how much trust is there, and then working with Anthony, and, and Anthony, you can add this too as a director, what is it like knowing that these guys, the projects that they take on are socially and politically conscious rather than just fluff? Sure, I'll go first. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, um, again, sort of singular to working with them that like, the stakes are higher, uh, the pressure's amplified because the topics are important uh, and topical uh, a lot of time. Um, and for myself, at least, I can only speak to my experience, but I always feel like amplified pressure is beneficial um, if you embrace it. If I allow myself, if I allow that to scare me, to make me feel like this must be done right, I must deliver. Um, then oftentimes, like that's what has to happen. Also, they, you know, physically punish you should you not deliver. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and then uh, as far as Anthony directing, a lot of the times, again, just in my experience, you alleviate some of that pressure. You turn Michael Jackson on in between takes and shake that ass, and it makes me, you know, it's like, um, and it's that always helped. Me, especially on Treme, where I was the young gun, and that was my first big job. And to be perfectly honest, I was scared shitless a lot of the time, you know, and wanted to bring it and make sure that I delivered to them. Um, you know, I mean, I've never worked with another director who did that, who like knew to kind of put us at ease, you know, make it fun, remind us that, like, dude, we're all dreamwalkers right now. We're all doing what we all dreamt of doing, and that's rare. And so, smile, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was my experience. I haven't gotten a chance to work with Anthony yet, but I hope, hopefully it'll be soon. <laughs> um, but I will say, like, Show, Show Me Hero was also my first big thing, it was my first thing uh, that I auditioned for when I got with an agent. So already I know I've heard of the why and I was like, I, I really want this. So I came in like just really desperately wanting to work with them. And um, and then we were doing ADR for Show Me a Hero and David came and said, um, I don't know, have you heard of my new show? And I was like, no. And he was like, it's called The Deuce and you now I have a role with you in mind, but it's not a role you take just to take it. So you should read the scripts and if you don't want to do it, it's no harm, no foul. Right, And to me, that was like the best thing he could have said because, of course, I want to continue working with them. And so to have the opportunity to say, well, this, this role is a little bit too risky for me. I don't think I want to do it. Didn't mean that it was going to be the end of our relationship. But luckily, I did show my hero with them, and I felt very protected by Nina and, and David. And so to go on to a project like The Deuce, I already was like, yeah, let, let's do it. And I already felt so so protected and um, honored to... You know, be a part of it. And, and then again, like in Show Me Hero, I played a, a 18 year old girl from the projects that, you know, had all the attitude. And so for them to th say, we see your work in this show and we think that you would be great in this show is a completely different character. I never 
I've never considered myself like sexy. I never like, like I always played teen, teen kids, you know? So Come on. this opportunity. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> but to get the opportunity to just, you know, have somebody who leads with that and who understands that power was just really exciting for me and I'm thankful. Um, I, I'll say this on Dominique. Uh, when she was working on Show Me a Hero, she had a composition book. Like, the, like she had written the entire backstory of everything she had conceptualized about her character. You know, some of which was from her conjecture, but all of it was in the pocket of plausibility. But you, Nina found that out, right? And you well, came to. But we were crossboarding. You have to understand, we had six episodes that we mashed all together. So I think on day one, we were actually shooting things from episode six and probably episode three and two at the same time. Right. So this was so Dominique. Um, it just it just blew us away. I think her preparation, being such a young actor and trying to wrap her head around all of that. Um, how was the span of what? five years, six years in the story. Yeah. So yeah. she had to, at one moment, be this person who had been through, you know, breakups and pregnancies and, and, and just this whole journey of this character and then modulate herself back to, you know, the start of the story. So um, her way of doing that was through music and through journaling and just lots of things that she took incredible responsibility for the for the part and for being ready for whatever. Nina came to me and said, we got a live one here. (laughs) (laughs) But um, Nina also made it um, acceptable. You know, I've I've been on, I love to write and I didn't have an opportunity to share with other producers and directors. They don't care, you know? So so, uh, just a relationship that we built together, she was open to hearing it. So I was able to share and say, oh, you know, I I wrote this or whatever, or even having an idea about hair for Darlene in another episode and being like, I don't know if I can, am I overstepping? But just feeling comfortable enough to email Nina and, and have my ideas be included. Uh, me? Oh, uh, I mean, I think as you've heard so much already, like they give so much, but at the same time, they expect the same, you know? And that's the great part of working in any of these productions with them. It's just that ability to really feel like you've contributed to the total piece, you know, and you just wasn't just brought on or hired to just do one little segment, you know, it's like really being a part of it. And and that's just such a great feeling, you know, and that's the great thing. They, the stakes are high and you don't want to let them down. That's the thing, you don't want to fail, you know, and it's like everyone has their, 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 their contribution or your lane and you better like bring it. And uphold your end of the, the you know, <laughs> the cornerstone of what we You know, uh, I was at Anthony, Anthony had a panel on bottle episodes earlier today, and somebody was saying, you know, that you really should watch the credits because there's people that, like, that every single person, every single job is something that contributed to that episode. And I think on our shows, that's, that's more true than otherwise, that, you know, if somebody comes into work not prepared. It's not just us. It's if anyone comes to work unprepared, it 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 affects everybody. You know, so we say that everyone we hire is um, given a long leash in terms of making decisions and being autonomous. And really, everybody gives input, but they also have to be able to back up those decisions. You know, um, don't you know? If David asks you like, well, why'd you do that? You know, you better have a good. good answer. <laughs> and because the material that we do is important 
it's um, serious and beyond challenging. It's that, again, the, the, the importance that, like what Chris was saying, I want to make sure that, you know, we don't forget about who we are, what we're doing. It's just breaking that monotony to realize that we're also here. You know, we're not doing surgery or creating anything crazy. You know, we're, we're, we're telling great stories, but we still have to be human. And I think that's the great thing. And it starts from the top, even though David may be in a brain and in, 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 in thinking about story. And when you come across him, you may think like, oh, wow, what's wrong with him? But I, you realize that, you know, he's you have no idea. <laughs> he's thinking same with Nina, same with me. But it's like the importance of trying to also remember that balance of just making sure that that net is there to to provide the safety for especially the actors that are having to come and deliver this material to still feel safe and protected because they're taking a leap. We all are, you know, because we're telling something honestly and, and it requires you to give yourself, your whole self. And that just requires that, you know, I know when it comes to my contribution that I need to make sure that in helping kind of govern the set and, and that part of it is you know, I want to make sure that we're all there and we're, we're, we're doing this together. They're, they're just not alone. I think that's a good ATX uh, session for next year. What's wrong with David Simon? <laughs> uh, what's, what's going on in that head? Uh, we need more time. We need more time. It's a two-hour session next time. Uh, I'm going to a couple of uh, audience questions, but uh, and this, David or Nina, you can take this. Uh, it says, you've shown amazing ability to address important and significant issues. What are the next big uh, things and issues you're uh, itching to address? Um, we have a pilot order for uh, a, a continuing series that was going to be about Capitol Hill. Um, in the earlier panel, if anyone was in it, I basically said what happened to that was we wrote it, um, we imagined a world in which a normative, sane, experienced politician from either the center left or center right would occupy the White House and Congress would continue to be overmoneyed and paralyzed. You know, status quo since Gingrich, depending, you know, I mean, it's, it's basically been back and forth in the White House with a intensely partisan Congress. So we wrote that, Trump. So we threw that out. Um, we rewrote it based on Trump being the farcical, um, inept creature that uh, he was in the early weeks, but then the tax bill being rammed through showing that the fact that he is such a strange, almost, you know, uh, he, he's a floor show, but he's also a cipher politically. Congress now could suddenly uh, affect incredible change. Second script thrown out. So we're working to try to deliver that. I think it's really important to address this moment when the republic itself and all of our democratic norms and all of our systemic uh, checks and balances when they're tottering. I mean, I don't think, if you, if you do what we do, which is address politics, there has to be a way to address this, but to go right at it, it's a moving target. As fast as you think you've surrounded what, what is possible, um, you know, it falls over into something, some new insanity. Um, you know, I mean, what can you write that can, you know, circumnavigate porn stars and, and and Russian, you know, bots targeting voters in Wisconsin counties. It's like, 
as soon as you think you've got a head for this, it's like, no, 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 we'll really show you something. Stay tuned. So how, that's, that's on the agenda is how we deliver that a political piece now for this moment. I, and it's, it's going to be a struggle. So another huge hit then, basically. Yeah. Yeah, this, that, that's not the one where we, hit, we find the audience. Uh, so if, if, if housing policy in Yonkers didn't get them, I don't know what. Yeah. I loved Show Me Hero. I thought that was great. Uh, this, is, this, is, this question from the audience is light, and I think a possibly nice closer. Did Ziggy survive prison? <laughs> um, he went to Iraq. <laughs> he went to Iraq. He was in the lead Humvee of Bravo Company. And this is a bigger picture one. Um, anybody can take this, carry if you want to grab this too. It's uh, how do you think HBO content has impacted primetime television uh, and the way we watch television? Um, truth, you know, it, it, it really raised the bar for what is truthful television. Uh, I, I think that's, I, I think that's why we, you know, stick with, David and Nina and their team. It's that, that's from the beginning with the corner, that was, you know, it, it, it knocked over a wall that seemed to have existed that, that we're, you know, and, and um, I mean, if you look at Generation Kill, which we didn't talk about much uh, this afternoon, the, the number of Marines that come back to me as that I encounter that, that continue to say that that defines the marine experience um, is astonishing. You, you know, the, the um, and, and, and when David and I started talking about him doing that, uh, the, the, there was an effort to, you know, do the all quiet on the Western Front for the 21st century. And it, it, it's reflective of David's larger you know, pursuit of, of truth in an otherwise, you know, kind of very much fantasy-oriented medium. Yeah, and it's, um, we have to wrap up here, but I, I do want to add that if, if no one has seen or if you haven't seen Generation Kill, it's a fantastic piece of work. Uh, it's, it's so immersive, and uh, as a critic, I was cursing David because it, just like The Wire, he drops you into it, and you can't, everybody's got masks on, you don't know who any of the characters are. He, you know, everybody had helmets on. I was like, what the, who the, who's who here? But it's like, it's, it's, I think it's indicative of not only uh, David and Nina and this whole organization, they don't pander to the audience. I think that's why you're here tonight to see this. 20 years of this uh, greatness is unbelievably hard to uh, pull off. It's a, quite an accomplishment. So a round of applause for this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us around the TV campfire. Stay tuned each Thursday for live releases from the festival, in addition to bonus content and exclusive interviews and new original series coming soon. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at ATX Festival and let us know what you think using our official hashtag, hashtag the TV campfire. Please rate and subscribe to the TV Campfire on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 8 of ATX Festival will be June 6th through 9th, 2019. 
For more information on attending, visit www.atxfestival.com. <laughs>